Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to the Last Wicket Podcast, um, where I'm joined by my co-host Mayank. Hey everyone. And we are joined today by Aftab Khanna, who's a keen watcher of cricket. And it's so nice to have him here finally. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Uh, wonderful to be on this forum. Look forward to, to the chat today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, so we'll start by chatting about the T20 series. Uh, did you watch the win, Aftab? What did you feel I was that. I was actually able to catch the tail end of the series, so um, I, I managed to see I would say majority of the last game. Although just from a time zone perspective, um, by the time I woke up, bulk of India's innings was done. But I did catch up on the highlights. I think it was a good series. Um, I would honestly admit, going into it, I thought England were favourites, just uh, given the fact that their combination seemed a little bit more settled while um, we were trying new players. But I was happy to see that the appetite for uh, change and experimentation was there. Um, in this series. Uh, I think uh, Sky, in my mind, got a chance a little late, uh, but I'm glad he did. And I think he showed his worth. Um, so did Ishan Kishan, which I, I think was, uh, was, was a rev- revelation. It, it's created more uh, choices for India, but I'm happy that in the top three, they're willing to experiment because I think Rohit Kohli and Dhawan there together for too long was just not the right recipe. Um, for T20s in my mind. And I know, uh, you know, there's a little bit of back and forth going on on Twitter right now, whether, you know, Kohli deserves a little bit of the, you know, elbow nudging that he is getting from fans about the 80 he scored and and uh, few of our Twitter friends have opinions on it. Uh, but I'm reasonably comfortable as long as in the top five, Kohli is the anchor. I think I'm willing to give him that leeway and I'm fine if like every four games, he, he'll make like an 80 where he, takes his time getting to 30 and then accelerates after that. But I don't think we can afford two or three of those personalities in, in the top five. So I'm happy that they, they, there's patience with Rishabh, Pant, uh, the Sky is there, Ishan, I think, should get more games. And I think KL Rahul, I think that they should persist. Hopefully, he'll strike form. Um, he has a lot of potential. I think somebody needs to free his mind and he needs to stop thinking about averages and strike rates. He needs just to go out. And I think all in all, good. I think on the bowling front, it was great to see Booby back. Um, especially in the last game, uh, he was the movie of the old, right? Who gave you a lot of control uh, while everybody else was going for runs. Um, so 
it, it was a good series overall. I think the only thing that I found maybe a little bit disconcerting is do India know who their two best spinners are in this format? Because I think Chahal went for runs. He seems to be experiencing a little bit of dip in form. Rahul Chahar is okay, but is is he going to be there? And then Kuldeep Yadav's kind of totally vanished from this. So right. that to me, I think, is now the only sort of jigsaw puzzle that's left. I think from a batting combination perspective, there's plenty of choices most people are. Certainly a very refreshing attitude from India uh, with respect to their batting. Uh, Mayank, what did you think? really summed it up well i i really enjoyed the fact that they were willing to you know experiment a little more and, and not really focused on this series itself um obviously with the t20 world cup coming up fairly quickly they wanted to try different things and one of the things that i enjoyed was you know somebody like washington sundar who's been part of the setup for a while has always been used as a new ball bowler they tried him in the middle over so it was a good idea to try those combinations some worked some didn't but that's okay that you know gets us closer to the final 11 um that we need so i overall pretty happy and i i completely agree on the kohli comment as well um i think if it's cl- clear clarified with you know rohit and the others batting around him that he's the only anchor and pretty much everybody has the license to go from you know ball 3 or ball 1 whatever you want to call it uh then i think that's a great approach to have now, i think the only question like aftab said is about the spinners um Jahel has kind of fallen back again. Uh, Kuldeep is out of the system again. So they'll have to experiment with Rahul Chahar. I think they're going to have a couple of series before the World Cup as well. BCCI has its own way of doing things. Uh, right. So white ball cricket is all the rage nowadays. It's easy to bat. Uh, chasing 200 is easy. Uh, but on the contrary, in the red ball game, you have falling batting averages. So if you look at the data from uh, the last five, six, seven years, in 2014, the batting average around the world was 35, but it's fallen consistently since then, and it hangs around in the late 20s uh, nowadays. So test match batting is going through a bit of a crisis, a bit of a correction. Uh, so we'll talk about this today in today's episode. We'll try to attack this from multiple angles. Uh, so I'll get into the meat of it and throw the question to Aftab first. So there are multiple reasons for this, right, that people propose. One of them is the flattening of conditions in white ball cricket, which makes it harder for players to sort of adapt to the red ball. Uh, what do you think about that? Does that contribute? So I have a slightly contrarian view on this. Um, I don't necessarily feel test match batting is in crisis. Um, I think what you're seeing is compared to the last decade, test match batting is reverting a little bit towards the mean. Um, and the reason why I say it is I um, I went back and looked, dug up about 50 years of data on, on Crick and Fern Stats Crew. Um, and so I went all the way back to 1971, right? Because people talk about like glory days of test match cricket and all that. And it's interesting that when you look at decade by decade chunks, starting from like 71 onwards, um, there's one decade that kind of really stands out as effectively, you know, the most glorious decade of batting. And that was between 2000 and 2010. A- and it's fair when people say that in the in, in the in the 2000s, um, you know, there was a lot of batting proliferation, and the numbers bear it out a little bit. Like if you look at it from just you know aggregate numbers for the whole decade, uh, the 2000s were a bit of an exceptional decade because every wicket came at an average cost of 35 runs. And in the 1990s, that number was 31 runs, and in the 80s it was 32 runs, and in the 70s it was actually 32 as well. Right now, granted that in the 80s and the 70s you had lesser number of teams playing Test cricket, and so the number of Test matches themselves in aggregate were lower. But in the 2010s, it started to revert back a little bit to 
towards the mean um, of about, you know, going back to about 32, what it was in, in, in the previous decades. And my theory is, I think we probably over-index a little bit on the white ball cricket. I mean, white ball cricket has been around for almost 30 years now, if we include like, you know, take like the 1992 World Cup as kind of like the starting point when it became more ubiquitous. I think what happened is the decade of 2000s saw more test cricket being played as Zimbabwe, Bangladesh, you know, a lot of these countries started playing, Sri Lanka themselves started playing much more. Um, and the pitches were much, much more batman friend, batsman friendly. But then also there was a little bit of a dip in the quality of bowling. And I'll speak to this, you know, there's some numbers that I dug up that, that kind of supports this hypothesis. And now you're seeing a little bit of a reversion where the pitches have become more uh, baller friendly, whether it's seamer friendly or spin friendly across different continents, the um, the quality of bowling attacks correspondingly has gone up, and there's evidence to prove that in a few few of the countries when you look at their numbers, um, and uh, the fact that yes, batsmen are more attacking, uh, not just because they play a lot of limited overs internationals, but they also play T20, and so the while the art of defensive batting itself is no longer around the way it was in 70s and 80s. A lot of it has to do not just because the batsmen are not batting well, but it has to do that the conditions are challenging and the ballers are uh, are, are posing new challenges. And I'll just throw out a, a, a quick stat around this um, humanization. If you look at, so I, what I did was I looked at data and I filtered for batsmen who've made more than 3,000 runs in test match cricket every decade from 70s to 2020. And it's interesting to note that in in, in the 1990s, right, you could potentially say 1990s were like the glory days of bowling. 26 batsmen in that decade scored more than 3,000 runs. Out of that, only 35% have an, had an average of 45 ply, you know. So a lot of batsmen were scoring runs, but not all of them were exceptional bat, batsmen, right? And you come to the 2000s, and that number balloons from 26 to 46, right? And 60% of those 46 batsmen had a 45-plus average. Right? This is the era of batting in, in 2000. And then you come back to 2010, and that number has now gone down to 33, right? And only 42% of the batsmen have 45 plus average. So this is in the past decade. This is in the past decade, in the in 2000, decade, 2011 yeah. to 2020, right? And right. so there's that's why I'm saying there's a little bit of a reversion um, to mean um, the the runs per over has kind of remained more or less same when you look at it from a decade per decade perspective. It got the 90s were a little bit slower. Batsmen were scoring at about 2.8. It stayed at about 3.2 um, between 2000 to 2000. Uh, 10 and then the next decade but i think what you are seeing is the the bowling attacks have 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 become better um and the pitches have become a little bit more juicier and spicier um and and of course there's an element of t20 and the fact that you know now when you go overseas you don't have a lot of time to acclimatize and so sometimes you get caught right so we'll talk about all these things in detail uh, but mark uh, do you have something to add about this yeah, absolutely. I think, as you said, Aftab sort of hit the nail on the head because a lot of those factors are, are key to think about as we unpack this and, and we'll definitely go into detail uh, into a lot of that. But the one other thing that I've sort of thought about anecdotally in the last, you know, uh, say decade is a lot of teams are becoming specialized in the sense that England, for example, um, and they're probably the leader in this, where they have a very, very different white ball team versus a red ball team. Um, and, you know, even in India, if you think about it, there's only a couple of players who overlap. Think about, you know, obviously Kohli is one of them. Rahul has been in and out, so I won't necessarily count him. Um, same with, you know, you talk about the big names, uh, Joe Root, Barber, Smith, Kane Williamson. These are some all-format players who are pretty much playing everywhere. But other than that, the teams change quite a lot. So to say that that limited overs has had an influence 
Um, I, I don't necessarily buy that argument just yet. And I, I think some of it is due to some of the wonderful points that Aftab mentioned. Yeah, this is a cliche we hear often, right? That because batsmen are attacking more in cricket, they can't defend. Now, this brings me to my next point because Virat Kohli also recently said in a press conference that uh, batsmen don't have that defensive mindset anymore. Uh, I have a little data about uh, defensive shots and defensive technique. So thanks to Freddie from Crickwiz, uh, I know that uh, defensive shot percentages have remained stable over the past few years. However, your chances of getting out to defensive shots have increased in the last four or five years. Uh, now, I also know that the percentage of boards and LBWs is increasing from about 2015 to 2019. And I also know, courtesy Cricketing View, he has a little Hawkeye data. Uh, I know from him that the strike rate of balls hitting the stumps has decreased. So that means if you're a pacer, you have a higher chance of getting a wicket if you bowl at the stumps uh, recently compared to the previous eras. So where does this leave us in terms of the technique of defense slash the mindset? of defense? Has that changed after? I think I'll make a couple of points on that. I mean, first, I, I, I would say Virat Kohli is brilliant at giving some of these lines to the press in, in, in his press conferences, right? He'll come out after the defeat and say, oh, we didn't show enough intent, right? And that's just everybody just wants to hear that, right? He, he, he's great at getting the monkey behind off, off the back. And then I'll, sometimes he'll lose and say, oh, you know, people don't play defensive bat, batting well, right? Um, so I, I now, I firmly believe, and I think Kathika on Cricketing View has said this before. I think he does it intentionally. On your other point, jokes aside, um, I wonder how much impact DRS has made in the last few years, right? I think uh, bowlers probably now actually have an incentive to hit the pads and the stumps um, and get more results in their favor uh, compared to what was happening before. Now, this is a hypothesis. I don't know like what kind of data so, we need to... Karthik you know, Krishnaswamy wrote about this and spinners have a higher chance of getting LBWs now post-DRS, yeah. but pacers don't. So pacers, yeah. for pacers, the number is the same. But yeah. for spinners, it's increased. So go on. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also uh, the 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 tendency. Um, Mayank brought that point about cross format players, right? And that breed is is a little bit limited. Um, and and it's fair to say that that breed does well, right? If you look at at least the last two decades, as I said, you know, if you just take that cut of batsmen who've scored more than three thousand runs, the ones who come out at the top are cross format players, like the Williamson, right. Smith, Kohli, right? What you have apart from out around them are people who are kind of keep coming in and out of the of the side and i think it's there that you might no- notice some of the challenges that come with uh, switching on that defensive technique and switching it off right so somebody like a pujara can be like totally switched on in a test match right and he's sort of like iron tight but someone like a uh, and Kohli is exceptional so he's able to kind of you know um, able to manage it across formats but some of the other players like rahul is a great example right Does someone get caught in between like how much sh- how many shots do you play and how much do you leave and I think it's there when, especially when the batsman is trying to playing more attacking shots off his body and off his stumps, there's a tendency they'll miss, they'll get bold, they'll get you know trapped in the front, especially if the ball is moving. And we have been playing on wickets in the last four or five years, particularly in places like England and New Zealand, where there's more resistance to the bowlers and the bowling attacks are much better. And I think that's contributing to this trend that 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 we are seeing. Yeah, I think to add to that, um, the other pieces, look at bowling averages, as you said, you know, there's a slightly better chance if bowlers bowl at the wicket today to get a wicket than, uh, than you know, a few years ago. But if you look at bowling averages in 2018, it was 27. The last time it was that low was 1959. 
For spin bowling, 2018 was 30. The last time it was that low was 1969. So it's not just, you know, something happening drastically. Uh, it's not a adjustment that happened over two years. Like, you know, let's say they started playing a lot of T20 cricket in 2015. And for some reason, because of that, their techniques changed or they started playing more shots. It, it's been a big change over four decades. Uh, so that tells me that it's definitely more than just batting techniques. Um, and I think that's where I have been hardcore is a little bit off on this one. Yeah, and I think the data supports that also, um, Mayang, and which is why I think, Himanish, when you posed this question prior to, to this podcast, right, I, I tried to take a little bit of a sort of a climate kind of a view, not a weather view of this data, right? And right. let's not pick like one specific year or this was the hottest year in the decade and the last time it happened was in 1890s. You take a little bit of a longer view so you get a bit bigger trends. And the the same analysis that I applied in the batsman, I tried to apply on the bowlers as well, right? So I took like these five or uh, chunks of uh, uh, five decades and I looked at bowlers who took more than 100 wickets in each decade, right? And so how many of them um, were averaging, let's say, under 25, right? Under 25 is a sort of a reasonable benchmark of a bowler who's doing really, really well. And it's interesting that, you know, again, it kind of jumps out that in the 2000s, the bowlers were really under the cost, right? You had 34 bowlers in that decade who took 100 plus wickets in those 10 years, but only one in five had an average of under 25. So those wickets were coming at a really, really high cost, right? And you look back at 2010, 2011 to 2020, the number went up slightly to 36 bowlers compared to 34 in the last decade who had more than 100 wickets. But now one in three had an average of under 25. Um, and that number is fairly similar to what you saw in the decades of 80s and 90s. I think 80s were probably like the best decade because one in two bowlers had an average of under 25 if they were taking 100 wickets. And so that's the time when you had Michael Holding and Markham Marshall and Joel Those are the guys who are dominating it. The 90s are still fine. 90s is about 35%, right? But that's what, that's what I was saying. You, you're kind of seeing a little bit of a reversion um, to, to the mean after like an exceptional decade between 2000 and 2010 when a lot of factors were, were, were combined in, um, in batsmen having a really, really good decade in the ballers. So I think one of the other questions that comes to mind as we're discussing you know, bowling averages and how they've gone down is uh, the deepening of bowling attacks. Um, I don't think you know 20 years ago or even 10 years ago for that matter, they were as good uh, fourth bowlers in each of these lineups. Um, so, Himanish, I'll go with you first on this one. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? How has that contributed? Yeah, so my my example for this is that your fourth bowler would not have been Neil Wagner 20 years ago. He would have been Chris Harris. Yeah. So, there's definitely. So, <clears throat> if you look at um, at least the top five sides, right? So, Australia, New Zealand, India, Pakistan, England, they've definitely got a better rounded bowling attack now. And what that does is that there's no let up when you're batting. So bad balls are harder to come by. And um, there is a theory which I agree with as well that uh, the outcome of a test match or a test series is basically dictated by what the bowlers do. Because test cricket is where the batsmen react to the bowlers. So if your bowlers are good, it's inherently harder to score runs, no matter how good you are, which is what we saw in the recent series as well. On a pitch like that with good bowlers, you couldn't do anything. So I think because of that, yeah, yeah. So that's that is a contributing factor that you have deeper bowling attacks everywhere. So if you count these, England have James Anderson, Stuart Broad, then they have someone like Wokes who can murder you in England. Uh, New Zealand have Jameson, Saudi, Bolt, Wagner. India have a great pace attack and spin attack. Uh, Australia have three phenomenal bowlers. So it's very hard to get sort of an opening for anyone. 
And I think that contributes. And we slightly tend to underrate current bowling because we sort of judge past bowlers by their whole careers and label them legends. Whereas current bowlers will become legends later, but they already are doing that stuff today. And we don't see that because we don't zoom out. So I think bowling quality in general is um, on an average higher than the past two decades. And we sort of don't take that into account. And I'll add a couple of numbers actually to that. So I I, I went back and I looked at how, um, how the teams have been doing. And to your point, you gave the example of New Zealand, right? In, in 2000s, between 2001 and 2010, New Zealand won about 40% of their tests. And that number has gone up to 57% in this, right? Now, not all of that is accountable for the fact that suddenly the pitches have turned green. I think it's because of the fact that there are four high-quality ballers who are coming at you at all the time. We spoke about India. And it's interesting that in, in, in that decade of 2000, right, the Ganguly, Dravid, Dhoni decade, India were winning one out of every two test matches, like 48%. Now you come to 2011 and 2020, where you have Ashwin and Jadeja, complemented by a really, really good fast bowling attack that knows how to bowl with the old ball on dry surfaces. India have won 77% of their games. It's a staggering percentage, but by far, the, you know, it, this is... These numbers uh, for India at home in 2010, in this decade, compared with what Australia used to do, win right. 70% of their games at home, right? And, and then I looked at another interesting team, which you don't think of a lot these days. So I went and looked at West Indies and how their numbers were, right? And you have a, have the situation now with West Indies where you can say there are reasonably three good bowlers when they're playing at home, right? There's a holder, there's, you know, uh, Gabriel, who's like in the support act, Alzari, Joseph, right? And, and uh, there's Kimar Roach. West Indies between 2000 and 2010 won 18% of uh, matches, test matches at home. That number has jumped to 38% in the last decade, right? Wow. Just goes under the radar. You don't notice it. But again, it's because of that depth in the bowling that's allowing them to be more competitive at home. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the, the fact that you can put out a, a very good bowling attack when you're at home, um, that doesn't give the opposition a let up. Is contributing to it, and I think the reason why you're seeing team a team like India doing well is because they can take that bowling attack and make it do equally well when they go abroad. And in the last five years, that's kind of been the source of. I'll put right. a question about India here uh, to you because there is a section of people that says that, and I sort of believed in it for a while that visiting batsmen are still not good at playing spin. So no matter who you put out to bowl, they will fodder against spin because their basic techniques are faulty. And they haven't rectified that because they don't consider conquering the subcontinent a big enough goal or something like that, right? Yeah. So do you think the ineptitude of uh, visiting batsmen against spin, especially in the subcontinent, has a role to play? Or do you think that's not an important um, I, I wouldn't go to that extent. Um, I, I think you you have to take into account that when you are playing overseas, right, you will not have all top six batsmen doing that all the time, right? There's a reason why some batsmen are really, really good and there's some batsmen who are kind of second tier and that's because the ones who are at the top are able to adjust their game everywhere, right? Um, and you will have exceptional periods in between when you will have teams who will have at least three or four batsmen who are really good away from home, right? Australia were one such team between maybe 2000 to 2005 and they were winning literally 60% of their games away from home, but they've fallen uh, sharply. So I, I don't necessarily buy, I, I agree that the technique is a big challenge. It, it takes time um, to adapt, but I, I won't buy the argument that, you know, suddenly now in the last five years, there's ineptitude, whereas it wasn't there before. I, I don't think the challenges have changed. Uh, as I said, two or three things have happened. I think one, you have now two spinners who are really, really good. Mm -hmm. 
and if you give them conditions uh, you know like what you had in that 2015 series against south africa right or you give them an Ahmedabad kind of like wicket there's really no getting out of it um and to some extent you know when i looked at data himanish i there was a tweet that you know yuvraj had put out maybe it was after the Ahmedabad test right where he said if yeah. Arbhajan and kumble had balled on these wickets they would have got 1000 test match wickets and i dismissed it out of hand at that point of time as like sour grapes but there's a little bit of a merit to that right because when you look at the data i think you realize that in that decade when harbhajan was there kumble was in his last years um there was actually you know a lot of batting friendly wickets that were being rolled out across the globe not just in india right and in this decade you've started seeing that we've had series where there have been at least one or two pitches that have been very spinner friendly you go back to 2013 the series against australia you go back to the 15 series against south africa you come back now to this series right but it has also been complemented by the fact that Ashwin and jadeja have been supported by two or three really really good and i don't think that was the case i think zaheer was the one before that so i think that's given india more teeth even at home and as i said i think we fail to account for that when compare batsmen from that golden generation of i think 2000 to 2015 is the chunk that you're looking at where batting was easy and then the past five six years have been difficult so we sort of fail to account for how bowling quality has increased i think also as i think mayank mentioned that teams are specialized now i think that's led to a lot of deepening in quality because bowlers need to be preserved a little more and because you have specialization you have better bowlers in test cricket now uh, for all teams uh yeah so Mayank? Yeah, I think the one one thing I'll add is um, from a pace bowler perspective, you know, I, I grew up like Rahul Dart became my hero when India drew that 2002 series in England, 1-1. And I thought, you know, wow, he's just unbelievable. There's nobody like him. And now I look back and now I think, um, well, yeah, but Alex Tudor was the bowler then. Uh, there was Dominic Cork who was averaging 30 and 34 in English conditions. Like, so that wasn't a great attack. I, I think about the 2003, you know, series in uh, in Australia where we, yeah. you know, managed to do one-one. That bowling attack had Brad Williams, who played five Test matches in total. So Nathan Bracken it, it, and yeah. Nathan Bracken and Nathan Bracken, uh, who you know was a decent limited overs bowler, but not as much of a established Test bowler. And and the same thing applies, uh, and the same thing does not apply today. Like if you think about Bhuvneshwar Kumar, who I think all three of us really like. Uh, we'll we'll know that you know we'll, we keep scratching our head. How is this guy not in the test side? And that's sort of the depth of the bowling attack that India has today. And India definitely is one of the better teams. But it's not just it's not just them. You know, think about Kyle Jameson being the fourth bowler. Think about somebody like James Patterson and Jackson Bird, who takes eight wickets against New South Wales, not even being in the Australia uh, or Australia lineup. So that's the pace side of it. But other than that, if you think about spin as well, uh, you know, people always talk about how ponting was mediocre in India. Uh, but what they often forget is in 1999, he had a really good series against Murli. So what it kind of shows is it also comes back to what is talked about a lot these days, that's matchups. And a lot of these players, you know, were able to play spin, but of a specific kind or, you know, had difficulty against a specific type of bowler. And Rahul Rahul is a key example, again, going back to him, his peak sort of finished around the 2006 timeframe. And if you look at his record in Sri Lanka after that, he played six test matches and averaged 22. Now he's known as the wall who, you know, did so well away from home and all of that. And there's, there's some truth to that. Obviously, there's, it's not based on nothing, but it kind of shows that 
there were batsmen even then who struggled against spin well established batsmen as well as well as new batsmen um you know who were technically not doing so well so in in my mind not that much has changed which is you know pretty much like after i was mentioning that's a very great point you make about matchups right i think we tend to um sometimes ignore the specifics and make more broader generalizations that oh so and so can't play in you know these kind of conditions and i think that's um, that, that that that's very important Now, on the point around ponting right the um w- one of the pieces that um, which kk wrote uh, about celebrating harbhajan's 20 years of his of his stellar series right ponting actually mentions right yeah, ponting actually mentions that you know i was being coached in generalities right people like oh positive intent and all of those things but nobody gave me the specific advice that how do i counter right. the bounce because the bounce was what was totally new for him right he, he's right. he and he he's played there's no other spinner that you could point to and say oh ponting was his bunny right? but there's a problem with one specific ball, right and it's the right. same thing with india you see like mulli's record in india he's averaging 40 plus but when they went to play ajanta mendes for the first time nobody really had a clue as to how do you pick this guy how do you play against him so i think that's a very valid point and you could potentially i mean i would that's for me but i would say like you could make that point about tendulkar against anders figured out a way to play anders throughout his career uh, agreed that anderson's peak coincided with him kind of literally terminating his career but but you on that single basis you will not say that you know tendulkar didn't know how to play in england it's just that he didn't know how to play one particular ball right that's a fascinating point because we talk about matchups a lot nowadays in t20 terms but the specific dynamics of the batsman versus bowler matchup like the physical things happening on the pitch they are much better determinants of what will happen in a test match because that's all that matters so we should talk about these specific matchups more in test cricket so i think the uh, i think we all agree that you know the bowling attacks have been better we don't have uh, somebody like saurav ganguly being our second pacer anymore uh, and i'm grateful for that um, we would not be able to wake up at 5 to watch that but uh, i think the other question that we've kind of alluded to a little bit is how much worse are the bat conditions as far as batting is concerned in test cricket these days um so after abal i know you've talked about a few statistics but anything else you want to add um on that question yeah so i i tried to see when you talk about like overseas batting right um how how well so sometimes we say okay how well are batsmen adjusting and and how well are they performing in those conditions so i looked at two specific countries i looked at new zealand and i looked at uh, england uh, similar conditions uh, and my hypothesis was that uh, it probably takes a little bit more effort getting used to those conditions especially you know depending on time of the year when you go there um, australia i would argue over the last year or so, last sort of decade or so yes there's bounce but there isn't so much lateral move right so i i looked at the last three decades starting from 1990 and i tried to apply a cutoff of batsmen who scored overseas batsmen who scored more than 300 test runs in a decade in in that country right um i went with a lower average lower cutoff earlier of 200 but then that starts giving you some tail enders who somebody might have had like a random knock but it's interesting when you look at both england and new zealand uh, and this goes back to our point about you know not just the conditions but the bowling attacks so england um in the 1990s right uh, 36 batsmen had more than 300 test runs visiting that this is like lara and even some pakistanis who had a couple of really good tours and in 2000 that number stayed the same 35 batsmen from overseas countries had more than 300 test runs and in the 2010s that number is down to 25 um and if you look at new zealand it's very much a similar story in the 90s there were about 18 batsmen who went there and had 300 plus runs in in the whole decade overseas batsmen in 2000 it's about 16 um and then in 2010s uh, it's come down to two. and again i think this goes back to the point about the quality of the bowling attack because if you look at england the last decade has been broad anderson 
complemented sometimes by Tremlett, Bresnan, Vox for the last five or six years, right? Um, and so it's not just the first two bowlers, but it's the, it's the third bowlers. But the quality of the first two bowlers is also so much different compared to what it was in, in the last the 20 years before that. These are, we are talking about bowlers who've taken 500 plus tests, and it's the same right. in New Zealand. Um, and it's also true that uh, teams now take much uh, longer and it's harder for them to adjust when they travel. Like even teams that earlier had really good records when they were traveling have now started to struggle. So Australia, for example, um, were winning 58% of their test matches in the, in the, away from home in that decade of 2000 to 2010. And that's come down to 33% in the last decade. South Africa under Graham Smith, especially in that 2005 to 2010, 11, 12 period, was really, really good. They were winning 40% of their games overseas. And that's come down to about 30%. And I don't think that number is going uh, again for them anytime soon, right? So I think, that, as I said, it's, a, it's sort of multiple forces um, coming together. Um, but yes, uh, the other thing I also wanted to sort of explore, and I didn't get a chance to get a lot of data into this, how many players are playing county now? Because if you remember in the 90s, right, you had this proliferation of uh, overseas players who would go and play county. And I don't know how many uh, people go and play county anymore because where is the time? You would much rather invest time in playing in a, and, and being financially secure rather than going and playing county. Sort of got your like in New Zealand. I think that's another maybe hypothesis that's worth, worth it. Yeah, so there's a couple of points here that I want to uh, add to your point. Uh, when you look at the home batting averages over the past two decades, they've remained sort of stable. But away batting averages have gone down. And which brings me to my next point, because there's this very good book by Mike Jakeman called Saving the Test. And he sort of talks about five or six reasons why the quality of test if it was going down. This was five years ago. So one of his chapters is how the shortening of the tour has led to a drop in the quality because you don't get enough time to adapt, and which is what you said as well. And again, I totally agree with you that there's no time to sort of work on your test match batting because you'd rather go to a league and play there or you'd rather play some white ball cricket. And I think that's contributing to uh, the drop in quality as well. Um, the lowering of the away batting averages also tells me that maybe teams have become better at sort of utilizing their home condition in terms of deeper attacks and more skill, right? It also depends on who you play in your in, in your in your touring games, uh... Uh, because right, right. what you're you used to go to England, right? And in the old times, you had an itinerary where you start off with a combined universities 11, you would play three county games. Right. Finally, you would reach the first test match. I think, if I remember correctly, like until at least the 1996 India tour, that pattern was mm -hmm. kind of still there, right? And after that, mm -hmm. it sort of vanished. It's vanished for everybody. Um, and there's no and, time nowadays. To and do there's that. no time right now. And you go and you probably play a two day game, and there's no guarantee that the opposition is even going to give you a decent two day yeah. game, right? You're not even most of the times playing against a state side. Right. right, right. Um, so, like, I, I remember in 99, India went and played a tour game in Australia against Queensland and got thrashed. <laughs> we were like, oh my God, what are these right, guys going right, to do yeah, in test matches yeah. now? <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah. but who were they playing, right? They were playing, like, in Australia, emerging cricketers where Rishabh Pant right. smoked CA, like 100 in, 110 yeah. overs or something like that. So right. that's the other thing, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't get enough practice and the one that you get is not against enough quality. And I think, jokes aside again, that, that point's been mentioned actually in maybe in one of Kohli or Shastri's press conference. They would much rather prefer just be in the nets rather than playing a substandard opposition mm -hmm. out on the Right, um, right. They've said this multiple. Yeah, yeah. I think the one aspect which doesn't necessarily touch upon this, but I firmly believe in, again, this is not based on data, but this is uh, just a hunch that I've always had is in general, I believe in evolution of players in the sense that they just get 
smarter, harder working, physically more gifted. Um, and I think this is across, this is not related to cricket or test batting. And, and I think it is related to sport in general. And I think that gets talked about not as much. So my hypothesis is um, that the average batsman, test batsman today is much better than the average test batsman, you know, 20 years ago. And obviously that that's not to say that, uh, you know, an Ajinkya Rahane is better than Sachin Tendulkar or whatever, but, but it, it's to say that the top, the cream today is probably slightly more gifted than the cream 20 years ago. And there'll always be, you know, the oddball exceptions like Tendulkar or like Lara, who you can't really say that confidently about, but pretty much everyone else. Like, I, I think I feel comfortable in spite of being, you know, Rahul Dravid being my ideal, I feel comfortable saying that Pujara has done more than Dravid ever did. So, you know, that's another aspect that doesn't get talked about as much. And I think we keep saying, oh, well, Pujara averages 48, Dravid averaged 52. But what we, you know, all these factors that we talked about, deepening of attacks, uh, the conditions being much worse for batsmen, not enough practice, all of that contribute to that showing up as 48 when realistically in another era, he would have probably been at 60 or 65 or something. Else. And I'll give you two or three numbers around that, Mayank. Um, so when I was looking at the 1990s, right, I, I uh, messaged Himanish and I asked him, I said, can you make a guess who is the batsman in that decade of 91 to 2000 who scored the maximum number of test runs in that full decade? And it's a very surprising answer. The answer is Mark Waugh. Right. Just by terms of aggregate, yeah. in those 10 years, scored 6,900 runs, but his average was 42. His brother, Steve, scored 400 lesser runs, but at an average of 56. And we talk about a lot of other batsmen. I'll give you a couple of other numbers. In that list, when you see 3,000 plus runs in the decade of 90s, there's Michael Atherton, 6,400 runs at an average of 38. There's Mark Taylor, 5,700 runs in that decade, average of 39. Right. And that list also includes somebody like a Graham Hick, 3,400 runs at an average of 32. And I don't think you would see those kind of numbers, um, you know, uh, in, in the current decade. Partly because, yes, someone like Hick would not be persisted for so long with those kind of returns, I, you know, and partly because Atherton and, and Taylor survived as opening batsmen, true, against some very good bowling, but they were they were there for a really long time. Today, you lose patience with, th- with those yeah. kind of returns from an opening batsman very quickly, right? Um, that would go away. So I think that that's where, like, when we sometimes when we say, oh, greats of the past and current era, greats are not that great. We just need to take it with a pinch of salt. and right. I, I completely agree. And I think the openers in particular have a very hard time today in my mind, because I was watching the 2018, you know, England tour where India went and, you know, we got it. It, it might from scoreboard it might look thrashed for one, but it was actually a much closer tour than that. And we saw Dhawan and Vijay, you know, playing those games and not scoring a ton. And, and then in the fifth game, KL Rahul came in and scored a century. And uh, everybody thought, yeah, I mean, this was much needed. I don't know why he didn't make this change two games ago. But the truth is that in 2018, the average opener scored 22 runs in an innings. So, like, even though it, it sounded like Vijay and Dhawan were doing really poorly, I think the team also understood that the conditions were very bad, which is why they gave them somewhat of an extended run. Uh, but as you said, like somebody like Graham Hick wouldn't even have lasted. And, and Vijay, interestingly, right? I, if you look at the last 10 years, if you look at Vijay's numbers, right? Vijay, Vijay scored about 3,400, 3,500 runs, but his average is in that Atherton Taylor league, right? He's, he's in fact slightly above. He's close to about 38, 39, right? I mean, he'll never get talked about um, in, <laughs> in those same terms. And the only player I could find who 
gave me a little bit of a throwback to the 90s in terms of numbers is Johnny Bairstow. He's kind of batted all over the English order. I was staggered to see he's played close to like 70 tests. Now, if you include the India-England series, he's like almost at 74, 75 test matches. Uh, about 4,000 plus runs, but he's averaging 34, right? And he's kind of floating all around. Now, you you can't make an excuse in Johnny Bairstow's case that this is a wicketkeeper batsman, right? If your number seven gives you 34, hey, I'll take it any day of the day. But Bairstow's batting at three, he's batting at four, he's batting at two, sometimes he's batting at five. You know, that, that's again an interesting take where England have persisted. Although you could question like it to what ROI has that done. England have some very weird selection policies, especially with respect yeah, to Yeah, now keepers. with the rotation, sometimes you don't even know, uh, right? You have to persist. <laughs> so this is an interesting point about it, it also sort of compared. Sorry, Mayan, go on. Now, just finishing up on that point about England being, you know, strange in their choices sometimes, it reminds me of their last coach, I uh, the name slips my mind, who thought that Jason Roy would be a good idea for the Ashes. So that that tells you a lot about their mindset during that. And that's a completely different, uh, you know, mindset now that, you know, think about Dom Sibley opening for them. So, yeah, they've definitely had a few uh, changes of mindset in that time frame. And it looks like Johnny Bairstow sort of persisted through that. Right. So this point about sort of comparing batsmen from different eras is often talked about, right? And I maintain that for whatever, uh, you know, uh, factors we've discussed, we should sort of try to take it with a pinch of salt and try to compare batsmen while keeping these things in perspective. Uh, I wrote an article for Click Info last year, and I'm going to read off that some numbers. So what I did was I, I took the average batsman in a four-year period. And I took the top five batsmen by batting average and took their average. So how are the top five sort of uh, performing compared to the average batsman? And so the average batsman from 2001 to about 2016 averaged about 39, 38. Uh, this is a specialist batsman, top seven. Uh, whereas the top five batsmen by average in those periods, they all had averages of about uh, 62, 63, 61. In 17 to 20, in that bracket, the average batsman averages 34, would drop about four runs. Uh, the top five average 58.6. So that is also a drop of about three mm-hmm. runs. So it's proportional. And you've got to take it in consideration when you talk about comparing batsmen. Uh, because there's a lot of people who sort of uh, belittle the Indian batsmen today that they can't play spin. But I don't think that's true. Uh, and I think there's a couple of outrageous events that drive the narrative. You know, if you collapse to someone like Moin Ali, who's not a specialist spinner, then that sort of builds on the narrative that, you know, they can't play spin. Whereas you have, you know, teams collapsing to Clark in 2006 or things like that. So I think the narrative is sort of driven by these outrageous instances. Uh, what do you think, Aftab? You've watched a lot more cricket than I have. So what do you think I, about I, these comparisons? I, I don't think I've watched more cricket than you in the last few years or so, especially since now I'm on the West Coast and I have a couple of kids. So my hours are very limited but we spoke about matchups here's a matchup for you right if you want to bring a spinner in indian conditions against indian batsmen particularly right-handed batsmen and you want him to be successful get a slow get a medium fastish left arm spinner who can ball between 87 to 92 miles an hour right monty panasar uh, mm-hmm. to some extent jack leach do you know who the most successful do you know who the most successful spinner overseas spinner in india has been in terms of wickets taken, Derek Underwood, 54 wickets wow. in 16 test matches, wow. all-time record in India, right? Wow. And uh, it's very decent bowling average, 26. Um, and it's right. I, I remember I was talking to Vijay Armugam on one of the earlier podcasts, and you know he was ma- making the same point that uh, people say, "Oh, you know, Gavaskar was a great player." He's probably a bunny of Underwood. I didn't get a chance to see how many times Underwood dismissed Gavaskar, but 
you know underwood's record is excellent and on this point you know this this is the one that irks me when people say oh you know the modern indian batsman can't play spin so i again crickinfo i went back and i had looked at um, who are the top sort of 10 wicket takers or 15 wicket taking spinners in india overseas spinners in india all time and i tried sorting by wickets i tried sorting by averages to make sure i wasn't missing anything and there are only three modern names who come in that list of the first 15 or 20 names right it's saklen who had a brilliant series in 1999 right he's averaging 20 took about 24 wickets in four test matches um you have nathan lyon who has about 34 35 wickets in india but at a high cost he averages about 30 um and, and then you have swan and panesar who had reasonably good returns in those two seasons although panesar if you take it across the number of times he toured india his average is not so so flattering but the other names on that list right people with really good averages richie benno 52 wickets in india Lance Gibbs, thirty-nine wickets at 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 twenty-three, right? Wow. Um, uh, uh, Ashley Mallet. Does anybody remember Ashley Mallet? Came in nineteen sixty-nine with an Australian tour, the series that they won, twenty-eight wickets at nineteen, and that's a lineup of Patodi, Jaisima, Gavaskar's not there yet, but right, you know, you're, you're you're talking Vishwanath, right? Really high-quality people. So you look down that list and you struggle to find like uh, recent players or recent names, right? And and if you again take that climate versus weather approach here you scale back the numbers will tell you the last decade has probably been the worst time to be an overseas spinner visiting india uh, overseas spinners have had the highest average uh, in terms of picking their wickets they've averaged 44 uh, and their economy rate has been 3.5 right and if you go back a few years uh, till maybe about 90s or 80s they were still in aggregate averaging about 43 44 but the economy was 2 and a half so they were at least not leaking runs so now you have a situation where the indian batsmen are more attacking not giving away runs and again i i sort of go back to that point right you we pick up specific episodes and we sort of blow them out uh, rather than looking at a bit bigger picture yeah and it's it's very irksome also on twitter because i think there's there's uh, there's a huge mass of people from that two th- thousands era on the internet now who can't get rid of that idea that you know tendulkar and dravid were some sort of demigod pair and they can never be trumped by anyone and that becomes a sort of a talking point repeatedly on twitter and i think all these factors that we've talked about uh, now finally i i want to ask you should we sort of recalibrate our conception of what a good score is or a good partnership is because we've grown up in that 2000 to 2015 era where you know your your 550 was a good big score your 200 was a good partnership now because we are sort of reverting to the mean of test cricket and going back to you know uh lower scores should we sort of rethink what our good score our good partnership in terms of batting i always feel you have to answer that question in the context of the surface and i don't think you can answer it um in a broader generality um so one of the things that i try and do if let's say i haven't watched any live action and i land up on crickinfo and i look at a scorecard when i'm looking through the commentary and the comments i'm trying to get a sense of okay what's par on this um right because that gives you a sense of okay you know who is reading the wicket how and so if you see um you know um when you let's say saw uh, the first test match in chennai right and how england were playing right and it, if it, if 500 is par on that wicket then you kind of know okay they are batting were in trouble you have to score 450 if you fall short then you're in trouble so i think the answer has to be kind of contextualized um based on certain conditions um, and what you're playing at right a good score and a good partnership 
on that first test surface at Chennai was very, very different from what the surface was for the second test at the same venue with the right. same teams. Um, and I think that will probably be true. I do think that we are seeing a little bit more variance in the dig of pitches as well um, across different uh, countries and um, uh, uh, in different locations. And probably, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that they're being played. And sometimes you have to roll out a right. surface on the same ground and then you need to roll out a test circuit, right. test cricket. And curating is not a science. Right. There's, there's such a big spectrum on it. You, you really can't land it exactly. Um, so my long answer short, I think it's contextual in my mind. I don't think we can define the rules and say, oh, now suddenly the mean good score in test cricket has shifted. Or has That's my so if you'd asked me that question first, I would have said yes. But Aftab has bowled me over uh, <laughs> with the answer. But uh, I think, yeah, it, it's true. Like definitely, you know, the context has to be seen because that first Chennai test is a really good example in a series where pretty much every pitch was of a different caliber. So that's fair. But I, I do think that in general, we can say comfortably post-2017 that 400 is the new 500 or, you know, like 350 is the new 450, whatever you want to call it whatever that number might be, because we were consistently seeing uh, bowling averages five by fall by five uh, runs per wicket. Um, and, you know, you might just say, oh, that's just five runs. But when you think about it, over 20 wickets in a test match, that's a significant difference. So I, I do think that there needs to be a certain sense of um, calibration of stats to, the, to that matter, because we'll see a lot of people say, oh, Rahane hasn't scored 102 years. But people don't necessarily see that apart from maybe the Chennai first inning, first test or the odd test here and there, the wickets have been pretty challenging. So the average batsman has, you know, has averaged 30 or whatever that number might be. So expecting somebody to score a century is pretty much playing out of their skin, kind of what uh, Rohit did in the second test on a spinning track, making that brilliant 150. So... Uh, I think there definitely needs to be that context in terms of raw stats, but uh, completely agree from an, you know, looking at an individual pitch, an individual game point of view. The one area where I do think some recalibration may be required, and I, I, I find this space fascinating, and I think it's very evolving. We'll have to look at data for another three or five years to figure out if this is a trend or if this is just like, you know, uh, one swallowed summer and um, it got brought up in, in, in one of the other uh, podcasts that I was listening, so I won't claim, claim credit for it is the success of chasing a fourth inning score in test cricket. And I think uh, what is a good score uh, on a good surface, in the flat surface, reasonably good surface in fourth innings, the, the expectation might change. Um, because I don't think 10, 15 years back, you would have expected India to get they, they did at the GABA or you would have expected the West Indies to do what they did at Chittagong. And this goes back to a little bit of a circular point. And when we say oh, quality of test match batting is going down, I think in fourth innings, I would argue the, the quality of the approach and test match padding in fourth inning is becoming better because people now want to win and not necessarily save um, test right. cricket. So if you feel that it's a 350 or even if it's a 400, you have people in your lineup who are used to scoring quickly, the wicket decent, you will make a uh, you know, And I think this Indian team has definitely demonstrated that. They, they tried to do it in Sydney, lost a few wickets. They tried to do it in the Oval, you know, which you could reasonably argue Rahul and Pant played for a draw, but they did not, right? And they did it at... So this is it's an interesting space. And I would like to see a little bit more data over the next four or five years to say if this holds, or are we just seeing a few, few aberrations uh, here of successful changes? there's not really much to do. yeah that's that's a really good point because the moment we talk about fourth innings ch chases and just teams thinking that it's possible 
I'm reminded of India in 2014 uh, at Adelaide, which, if I remember correctly, was Kohli's first Test as captain, and um, he was, you know, it, it almost felt like he just knew that we were going to do it. It, it. it was that sort of belief that he had, and we were chasing 340, which we hadn't chased since 2003 outside of India. We'd not chased uh, uh, more than 200 successfully since 2003. So, like even then, like we saw that trend starting, and obviously now after six years of trying that. on a fairly regular basis we're starting to see some success in the indian setup but we also saw west indies do that a day later or two days later in bangladesh uh with the second string side so i definitely feel that there will be scope where people will have to teams will have to think about um you know declaration a little more carefully uh once they realize that there are these batsmen out there who are technically sound enough to play out the good ball and then you know once the ball gets old or the bowlers are a little tired exploit them enough to chase quickly and get these 300 type targets um i feel like you know obviously rishabh pant is of an indian example that comes to mind but people like nicolas poran and and such talents are there in every team they may not have made their mark the same way that pant has made so far but uh, there's a good chance that that's going to happen over the next 2 3 years and you know to aftaf's point we'll see that happening more often I think you can almost argue that T uh, Twenty cricket has sort of improved Test cricket because now you've expanded those possibilities of shot making. And uh, if you look at the um, percentage of caught dismissals, they haven't gone up. So it's not like you know people are playing rash shots all of a sudden. It's not like that. I know a lot of people tend to blame T Twenty cricket for that, but I think T Twenty cricket has sort of improved uh, the range of shot making and the range of possibilities in Test cricket. and sort of coupled with the conditions becoming more difficult this has put test cricket in a very fascinating space right now because the battle is sort of balanced now where your batsmen can chase down those 350s but you have good conditions and good bowlers so we talked about five or six factors in conclusion after uh, what would you like to say like a summary of what we talked about and what really matters to test batting well to your listeners i would say look at the climate not the weather um <laughs> uh, um and that, that's also i think uh, you would appreciate it dimanish i mean you put on the statisticians hat quite a few times like looking for um but i but i think in summary i would say um you 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 have to look at broader for in sweeping generalizations i think we are at a unique uh, point um and there's a there's a very famous line which i read in another book that you know um what you see depends on where you are standing right so if you change the point at which you are standing your would be different so we are at this point where we are right now living in an era where you have four or five teams with really really bowling attacks you have pitches that are bowler friendly and so we've suddenly gone to this hypothesis that the bats there's something wrong with the batsmen um which may not be the case and it might be that if you're having the same conversation in 2025 that era would have passed right and beyond maybe one or two teams uh, the bowling attacks are not so deep which was what the case in the in the first half of the decade of 2000s where only australia had a reasonably good bowling attack and till they ran into england in ashes in 2005 they were just team so we have to be mindful of the fact that we are under a set of unique circumstances and we don't know how transient or permanent they are um so that's the other thing that we should we should caveat ourselves by um but i fundamentally agree with you and i think uh, yes the way the batsmen are coached and trained is different today and more aggressive they play more shots that's why you see more fourth innings runs being chased that's why you um, you know um, a higher strike rates or higher average um, but it's also true that you know the bowlers have more skill they've been asked to add to their repertoire of skills due to t20 so t20 is definitely added skills on both sides of the equation um for for 
for all the participants in the cricketing ecosystem. Um, and I come down to the fact that I, I always wish, I always want that the pitches should be competitive. They should have something more. And I don't mind right. a rank turner uh, that gives more uh, lever to the spinners. And I don't mind a lean top that's more to the seamer. I would much rather take it over a flat wed like Lahore 2006, where everybody has a chance to just statistically boost. Right, Tablis Mayank? Uh, no, I, I agree. I think uh, definitely I don't personally think that, you know, batting quality has dipped by a large margin. There might be certain teams where you can say, okay, you know, West Indies doesn't have the same batting quality that they did in 2000, but uh, more or less, I think that's an exception rather than the rule. Um, and one of the good points you brought up was T20 batting and its impact. I, I definitely think it's gotten a very positive impact on test cricket. And I, Initially, I was very much, uh, you know, of the opinion 10 years ago that OT20 is going to ruin test cricket. And the more I've looked at it, I've felt that, no, I think it's actually improving various aspects of test uh, cricket, whether it's fielding, whether it's just batting quality, whether it's ability to chase in the fourth innings, as we talked about a little bit. Um, So overall, I think it's more nuanced in just saying, you know, test batting has dipped. The only thing I would add before we wrap up is one thing that as fans, people should be mindful of is that there's still compartmentalization in the formats. And so the metrics that you apply to judge success have to be a little bit different. Like you can't look at strike rate as a measure of success in, in test match cricket. Um, just like average is not a good measure of success, in, right? So you are talking of different skill sets and different sort of um, uh, 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 formats. There is transferability of skill sets across them but you can't measure success. right and that that talks to our debate about pujara right? i was about to say that's my that's my, that's my that's my that's my that's basically my underhanded way to say get off his back right <laughs> all right uh wonderful conversation thank you after for joining us thank you and uh it's been a pleasure to have you and have this very deep conversation on test batting i hope people listen in people uh, show the kind of patience pujara this podcast and listen through they, they won't uh, right. have to listen for six hours like like he has to back for that long. <laughs> right, right. It's slightly shorter. Right. All right. Thank you so much, Aftab. Thanks. Thanks for having me.